0: And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, And has outraged the spirit of grace For we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay And again the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God But recall the former days when after you were enlightened You endured a hard struggle with sufferings Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word.
1: The concept of the gap between expectations and reality, that there's oftentimes this real disparity or, you know, difference between what we expect from life and then what life delivers to us. He also said that this gap leads to tension, it leads to conflict, it makes us very uncomfortable, distressed, even sometimes feeling guilty. And we make up all kinds of clever schemes to deal with the gap. Um, We try harder. We change the expectations, lower the standard, ignore the gap. And then he said that God has standards and expectations for us, too. And those are revealed in this thing called the Torah, the law. Um, 613 laws were given. God made it clear what he expected from us. And really, in the final analysis, that's what. Actually, counts, right? Because we have to give an account to him. So this gap continued to widen. And in order to deal with that gap, God created this thing called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the worshiper would come to God through the priest by way of a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice for sin would cover sin, for a while, it was an atonement for sin. Um, that model or shadow, as the apostle writes about, was fulfilled in Jesus in his crucifixion. He rent the veil at the cross that divided us from God and allowed us to usher ourselves into his very presence into the presence of the Holy One, who is a consuming fire. He actually made a way for us to have a personal relationship with the almighty, holy God. Well, the Pharisees, they missed the whole point of it. They were stuck on the sacrifice system and didn't realize that it all pointed to Jesus. So today we pick that up and we look at... First of all, the shadow of things to come. And I know a shadow is an interesting thing. I'm married to a watercolorist, and she uses a lot of light and dark and shading and shadows to, um, to, to paint with. It's part of a technique. These negative spaces, the absence of light that's created by the reality of a form or an object between the light source and the canvas In order to create a feel, shadows suggest a real form somewhere out there, either in the picture or perhaps off the canvas that the viewer has to automatically imagine based on this colorless profile projected on the canvas. Well, shadows serve an important role in helping to frame and highlight The few objects that are unobstructed and in the light. We don't usually get excited about the shadow. I mean, imagine it won't be long on a very hot summer day that you will be looking for shadows to find comfort in. We call that shade, right? And rarely do you sit in the shade and say, I just love this shade. You say, I'm just so glad I have the tree that provides the shade, the branches, the leaves, that's the shade tree. But the shade itself is the result of, and it points to something, a real object. In God's economy, he was always pointing to Jesus through the system of sacrifice and atonement. To the day when one, at one time, Christ would come and once and for all offer himself up As a sacrifice for sin. No other sacrifice would be required. That would be the end of the sacrifice system. Because his sacrifice would be good for all time. For all generations. Past, present, and future. His sacrifice was superior. Because it was offered as a spotless lamb of God. Who came to take away the sins of the world. Once and for all. So there's no other need for for their sacrifice and his sacrifice is superior because it was offered for all people, for Jews, Gentiles, every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue. So we read in Hebrews 10, leading up to our portion today, that after Jesus performed this work on the cross, that he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. I would have loved to hear the conversation and just see that reunion between the Father and the Son after he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and finally sat down. What was he saying? My work is done. It's finished. I've completed the the mission for which I was called. I'm sure there were high fives and hugs and all the kinds of things that, Um, surround a retelling of the story and the events. I could even hear Jesus possibly saying to the father, did you see the look on the faces of the disciples when I told them that they were responsible to feed the 5,000? Or when I raised Lazarus from the dead, consider what the people thought. Or when I told Peter to come out and walk on the water to me, did you see the expression in his face? And when he learned that I was sufficient to keep him from sinking. Yes, Christ's coming was to bring God to earth and to present us to the Savior, your Savior and mine. And he tells us here in Hebrews 10 that for those who refuse him, that they will... No longer have a sacrifice provided for them. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who refuse Him now will one day recognize His Lordship, that He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In fact, We read in Revelation 19, the judgment will take place on earth that Christ will return riding on this white horse and out of his mouth will be this flaming sword, which is the word of God. And he will execute judgment and his enemies will be brought down and be made his footstool. He will strike down his enemies and he will rule as uncontested king of kings and lord of lords. So. What was the work of Christ that these sacrifices pointed to? The work of Christ was our salvation, was it not? It was to rent this veil in two so that we would have complete access to the Father, unhindered by our sin. Because now he would write his law in our hearts the Holy Spirit, who he would give us. He would give us new birth. He would forgive our sins once and for all. He would make us his children. He would give us a hope secure in heaven so that he would go and prepare a place for us and then return to take us to be with him. All of this is our confidence, my friends. This is what we have to anticipate and look forward to. All because Christ was the fulfillment of that shadow that was foretold in the Old Testament. So now in this section today, he tells us three things that he wants us to do as a result of this reality. The first thing is to draw near. The second thing is to hold fast. And the third thing is to stir up. These three action verbs are what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes. First of all, draw near. Well, it's the extreme opposite response to those who are living in guilt and shame, right? We don't want to draw near to God. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, we want to hide and clothe ourselves and, and get away from God because we're aware of just how sinful we are and how holy he is. And so we really don't want to be found. We don't want to be revealed. We don't want to be made vulnerable. And yet that's the push pull in the Christian life as we grow in our walk with Christ. There is a desire to be close to him, but then there's a there's also a, a desire to to be hidden from him. As we grow in him, as we get to know him, he reveals to us our true selves, our true natures, and all the things that continually need to be changed, our own sin that we need to deal with. And that makes us feel really uncomfortable with God. And so there's times when we don't pray, when we don't seek him. We're sort of like Peter. You remember Peter when he was told by Jesus to push out the boat And fish after Peter had been fishing all night long and caught nothing. Here comes this carpenter. Jesus says, push it out one more time, Peter. Throw your nets over. He says, Master, we've been doing this all night long. Maybe he was thinking, you don't understand fishing. If it it doesn't happen, you know, during the night, it's not going to happen during the day. But he says, because you said it, okay, we'll do it one more time. And then two boatloads later, a fish that are sinking this craft into the ocean. Peter is overwhelmed. And he finally comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. And he says, leave me. I'm a sinful man. You know, it's like you don't know what I've been thinking, Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm amazed by your grace. And I'm also confronted with my own doubt and my fear and my unwillingness to obey you. That's the push-pull in the Christian life. In spite of that, we are to draw near to Him. Why? He tells us right here, the reason we draw near is because God has provided for us a sacrifice through the blood of Jesus. He says, since We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. See, you don't come to to the presence of God on your own merits. If that were the case, none of us would. We'd all be hiding in the trees trying to cover ourselves. No, we come into the presence of God through the veil on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. And that is potent. That is complete That is powerful and it never, never gives up, dries out. It's always effective, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You have not been saved because you are worth it. You are not saved because you've done something to deserve it. You are saved because of his grace not as a result of works, so that you and I don't have any reason to boast. So our posture toward God ought to be to draw near to him. And he says, draw near, not just because you're now qualified by the blood of Jesus, but because you also have a great high priest who's there sitting at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. At the right hand of the Father. Think about this, friends. Jesus is there praying for you, for me. I mean, is that a winning combination or what? We come through the veil on the basis of his blood and we see Jesus praying for us. Now, James tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man has great effect. Well, just imagine the effective prayer of Jesus on your behalf. Is that going to work? Yeah, you're a winner because Christ is praying for you and his plan for you is that he will finish what he began in you. He's committed to that task. He's not going to give up on you. So transformation of your life from where you are to where you will be. And that is the image of Jesus is a definite must. He's in the process of doing that in your life. And he uses all the events of life orchestrating them to that end. What's the manner in which we draw near? We come on the basis of the blood. We come to the great high priest who's praying for us on our, on our behalf. And we come with a sincere heart. We don't come saying, Lord, I was pretty good today. I, I'm good today. I don't feel like hiding because, you know, I can look at a few things that I've done right, you know. Um, What about that thing I said to her? I encouraged her, Lord. You you come with a sincere heart and that sincere heart is a broken heart. That sincere heart is what David described in Psalm 51. He said, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. See, God doesn't want our excuses. He doesn't want to hear about our merits. God doesn't want our complaints, nor does he want us to come to him and just say, Lord, I need, I need, I want, I want. God doesn't want us to cover up our past or our sins. He wants us to come as broken people and come to a God of grace. How do we know what sincerity is? How do I know that I'm real before God? C.S. Lewis said, the prayer preceding all prayers is this. May it be the real I who speaks and may it be the real thou that I speak to. Desires, Lord, help me to see myself as I am. Help me to see you as you really are. And how is it that we know God? How is it that we know ourselves? Except as we meditate on God's word, it begins to shore us up. It helps to center us. It's painful at times. As we work with each other in fellowship and we see the rough edges of our lives and we're confronted with our own sin, we begin to see who we really are. And we see who God really is. And then we come with it to him as broken people on the basis of Christ's merits to a God who is there praying and interceding for us. And we come with full assurance. He says, come in full assurance, your hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. No longer do you have an evil conscience. It's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. He sprinkled his blood over us. And so positionally, he sees us as completely whole. Now, I was a when I was a boy, I used to fish in the Rouge River. It was a river that flowed into Detroit and, or from Detroit. And I loved to fish. It was the only river around that was close. I caught a lot of fish out of the Rouge River. Um, A lot of uh, catfish and and bluegill and uh, occasionally a carp. Uh, They even have these like gold carp in there. If you could get one of those, wow. But but the Rouge River was not a clean river. In fact, sometimes the Rouge River would catch on fire because it had oil slicks on it. And... I didn't take those fish home with me. I wasn't going to eat those fish. I always threw them back. And when I moved out east to, to New England and started fishing in the mountain streams, I couldn't believe that you could, you could eat fish from the river that you, that you fished from. The streams in Detroit needed to be cleaned, but the streams here were pure. That which came from the Rouge River was like that which came from my conscience before I was a Christian. It wasn't good. It was polluted. It was contaminated. It was not ingestible. But that which comes from my heart now as a believer is the overflow work of the Holy Spirit and its love and its joy and its peace and its patience. Not all the time, but that's the work that God is doing in us, right? We come, our hearts having been sprinkled clear, clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies having been washed pure from water. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And these temples are intended to be used for him. There was a teaching in the early church that the body is evil and the soul is good, and there's this tension between the two but that's not really a biblical teaching. The Bible tells us that our bodies are actually the temple where God dwells. And and so they're precious to him. They're not eternal. They're temporal. We can't take them with us, although we will be translated with and changed into a body like that of our risen Lord. But these bodies are to be used for him. And so. Why would I want to then contaminate this temple with all kinds of crud that's out there? I've got to be very careful what I dump into the river, right? Because I will get out of that river what I put into it. Keep that river clean. He says, draw near with a sincere heart and a clean conscience through the veil because you have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. And you have a great high priest who's there waiting for you, praying on your behalf. Secondly, he says, hold fast. And I've used this illustration before. Hold fast like the captain of the ship who is absolutely committed to the safe passage of his vessel. While the other crew members may have the liberty to go underneath and find security and safety, you see the captain up there strapped to something, a poster, and his hands are white knuckle gripped upon the wheel, and his face is forward looking through the storm, trying to navigate this ship in what might be a hopeless storm condition. Don't give up. He says, hold fast, Christians, because life is full of storms and it will seem like you are going under. But you have the captain of your faith standing behind you, leaning over you with his chest engulfing you and his hands upon yours as they're upon the wheel. And he's looking forward and occasionally he points in this direction or that direction. To show you the way to go, He does not keep you from the storms of life, but He travels with you, showing you, leading you, guiding you. What are we to hold fast to? The confession of our hope, He tells us. What's the confession of our hope? Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. He was raised for my justification, according to the scriptures. He ascended to the right hand of God and sits there ever living to make intercession for me. That's my confession. I will not waver. He says, do not waver in your confidence. You are a child of God. Don't let Satan tell you anything else. Don't let the doubts of your, lo- your heart Rise up and cause you to question your relationship with God. You come to him always on the basis of the blood of Christ through the veil with Christ there praying for you. So do not waver. What does James say about wavering? He says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. Without wavering, the King James Version says, or doubting, because the one who doubts or wavers is like the seed, the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he says, as you're going through this storm and you're holding on to this wheel, make sure that you hold on tight and you do not look back. Do not unstrap yourself. Do not go under to seek safety. Continue to push on knowing that he is there. Do not waver or doubt or turn back because that person is unstable. That person will not receive from the Lord the grace he needs to move forward. So the mind is constantly forming assumptions about life. We listen as we're young, we look for answers to the tough questions of life that we're going through. We construct this worldview to make sense of things, sense of the challenges, the sufferings that we experience or see around us, the discipline. We're always making assumptions about life. We're either consciously or subconsciously creating this lens through which we see life and make decisions about what we should do. And once these assumptions are sort of solidified, most of what we do is just like an autopilot. We make decisions based on these assumptions, and we don't really know why. We just know that we do, because that's what we've always done. That's what we've learned, maybe from our parents, maybe from past experiences that have contributed to the forming of this lens or from people that we have respected. Um, but for the Christian, we know that we're called to live sort of counterintuitive to what those assumptions might be. We're called to examine them. And then as Christ unfolds to us, the ways of the kingdom, which seem very different than the ways of the world, we're to walk in the truth as he is in the truth. The only way that we can re-examine those assumptions is by meditating on the Word of God day and night. There we find the answers that helps to realign our lens to God's Word, His truth. So, why hold fast? Hold fast because He is faithful. He will see you through. Imagine yourself holding on to this wheel And Christ being over you, guiding you, helping you, showing you which way to go. He is there for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Finally, the third thing he says is stir up one another. Intensify your commitment to Christians. He says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's that day? Christ is coming. As things go progress, we know that the church must be the church more than the church has ever been the church. We need one another. We need to stick together. We need glue to hold us. And that glue is the Holy Spirit who joins us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and in all and through all. He joins us together as a family of God. Even more so than our nuclear family. Stir up one another. Consider, he says, how to stimulate one another. Consider one another. What does that mean? It means to put thought into, reflect, to make others, as Paul says in Philippians 2, consider them as more important than myself. Hmm. And their spiritual progress is just as important as my spiritual progress. Wow. So, Then I'm called to consider how to stir them up and stimulate them to love and good works. That's an interesting concept. How much time do I invest in figuring out how to help you grow, how to stimulate you to love and good works? And how much time do you spend, even in the context of your own family or your roommates or your friends, helping them to grow in their faith? Challenging them, speaking truth to them in love, focusing on what is good and lovely and pure and honorable. All those things in Philippians chapter four. That should be our agenda with one another is to push each other forward toward maturity and faith in Christ. How do I do that? Well, very simply, I begin by learning how to listen actively. Actively. Not jumping to conclusions, not thinking about what I'm going to say next, but actively listening to the people that you may think you already know hands down. But don't ask them engaging questions and listen to those answers and then pray and reflect on what can I do, Lord, to be a catalyst in their lives for change, to help them grow, to take another step He says, stimulate or provoke one another to love and to good works. We have a wood stove at home. And gosh, my wife would say, I'm not very good at keeping it going. It's a lot of work to keep a wood stove going. It requires paper and kindling and and, and intermediate sticks and then larger sticks and then you have to continually feed the stove to keep it going so that it burns well and provides warmth. Uh, and if you don't take the right steps like I have oftentimes not done, you know you just stuff it full of paper and then you stick the big stuff on, what happens? You know it just it goes out, right? And then your wife comes along and shows you how it's supposed to be made. Well. What's the life of a fire? As the fire is going, the fire has a life. It burns and it uses the oxygen from the materials that it's burning until it has nothing left to burn and it begins to die. That's the concept here of stirring one another up to love and good works. You have to bring those embers together and continually feed them in order for Christians to grow. You are, I am an agent of grace in each other's lives. You are God's plan to help others grow in their faith. It's not going to happen any other way. You are God's plan to stir up one another, to love and good works. How do you do that? You listen, you reflect, you consider, well, what's this person good at? What are they doing well? Let's take that good nugget that they're doing well and let's try to stir it to get it burning into a red-hot ember. And do you put yourself in positions... You position yourself in places where stirring can take place, like the table talk last Wednesday night. I heard some great reports about it. I like the small groups that are offered throughout the week, like the courses and the teaching and the preaching and the prayer group that's at 830 every Sunday morning. I have people coming to me and they're so excited about their faith and what's happening among the people of God here. And then I have other people that are saying, there's nothing happening, is there? Boy, we're really dying, aren't we? And you think, well, you know, it just depends on where you position yourself. You know, if you position yourself in a place where you're going to grow and where you're going to be used by God, you are going to see God work in amazing ways. Position yourself where you can grow and where you can make a difference. Can you think of people who are really encouraging to you, who inspire you to reach and push and hold on fast to what you have, and think about how wonderful God is, these people are not out to impress themselves, or they're not out to impress you. They're not boasting about their own accomplishments, nor are they complaining about the many things that life is throwing at them, because, golly, we could all complain, couldn't we? These are the people who are choosing to be a catalyst for growth in the lives of others, especially in their own family members. It's so hard to be a catalyst for growth in your own family, right? After all, they know me so well. They know my flaws. They know my limitations, my weaknesses. That's the place God wants you to start, was with your own family. Help each other grow and then reach out to someone else. I have someone who texts me regularly and says, we're praying for you. We're we're praying for you. What else can we pray for? How did that appointment go? We're praying for you. And then he shows up at my house and says, can I help you? I'm like, wow, you really mean this, don't you? You're really sincere. Wouldn't you like to be that kind of person to somebody this week, maybe even today? What impact do you have on people? You can have as much impact as you want based on how much you love and are willing to get involved in their lives. You can help them to become a better father, a better husband, a better child, a better student, a better Christian. You can help them by encouraging them, by exhorting them, by rebuking, by correcting, by loving them into a better place. So what? Move people Move toward people, not away from people. Position yourself in a good place. Be intentional about your relationships. Plan what you're going to do and reach out to others with a plan. Be bold in your love. Speak words that build up, not words that tear down. Love requires that you think more highly of others than you think of yourselves. Their spiritual life and growth must be every bit as important to you as your own is to you. What is your intention and your goal in stirring others up to love and good works? He tells us here in Hebrews is to help them overcome sin and to prepare them for that day when they will stand before the Lord in a day of judgment. You want someone else to hear this from the Lord Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We can be a part of that in each other's lives. I challenge you that, with that today, that we would stir one another up to love and good works, that we would hold fast To what he has given us. And that we would make a difference in each other's lives by drawing near to the Lord through the blood of Jesus Christ. The apostle ends this by saying, you know, you got to remember the days when you first came to faith in Christ. You were persecuted for your faith. You were made a public spectacle. You were sharers with those who suffered. Some of you even had your property confiscated from you. But that's okay because you have a home in heaven. I want you to anticipate that. In the meantime, endure. May your faith continue, push on, and take one another with you along in the journey. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love and grace. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir up one another to love and good works. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us grace to start well and to end well, and that you were with us every step of the journey. That you, in fact, put your hands over ours and guide us as we go through the storms of life. That you point us and the direction that we should go, and that you take us safely to our eternal destiny because you are faithful. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God, knit us together and help us to be a catalyst of growth in each other's lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.